So our reading today is from the book of Mark, uh, chapter 6, verses 14 to 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death. But she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give to you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked him, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The word of the Lord. We're in the middle of a series through the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. So those of you who are just joining us, um, uh, we're in chapter 6. We've been marching along and looking at Jesus' ministry um, through this gospel. And as we continue through this series, it's helpful sometimes because um, we're kind of down in the trees, right? We're down in the weeds, getting the story week in, week out. We're trying to follow it. But it's helpful sometimes to kind of zoom out, go meta, and look at the, the overall picture that we've been given of Jesus, the, the big picture of this gospel. I mean, the central claim of Christianity is that God came to earth, lived as a human man, uh, and that he did things, he said things, he was killed, he was raised from death. And Mark recounts all of this with historical accuracy. And he even does it with like literary style. He does it with, um, he's thoughtful, he's engaging. In other words, this is great reading. Okay, this is really compelling reading. And that's the stuff that happened, the what of the gospel. Okay, it tells us what happened from about 4 BC to 30 AD in the, in the ancient Near East in this little area around Galilee and Jerusalem. But I think the question that we've regularly got to remind ourselves of as we're looking at Mark and actually as we're looking at the Bible as a whole is not 
necessarily what. I mean, of course, that's important, what happens in the Bible, but why, right? The big why. Uh, why should we even care that this stuff happened uh, 2,000 years ago? Why did Jesus come here and do all of this in the first place? I mean, Jesus left the comforts and the riches of heaven. He came to live a life of poverty, suffering, and loneliness. Why? What's the motivation? Well, if we go back to the very beginning of Mark, in chapter 1, we're reminded of the big why, the one central reason, the one key thing, Jesus' mission statement. In Mark 1.14, we read, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying this. This is what the whole thing's about. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. See, the whole story, the big why, the reason everything is written in the Bible, the reason that we're even here on a Sunday morning, whether we know it or not, is this claim that there's a new king and a new kingdom that is extending into the world. The, the story of Jesus we've been following so far is all about that. He proclaims his new kingdom. He talks about it. He demonstrates his new kingdom in, in wild miracles like driving you know, demons out of a man into a herd of pigs and they careen off into the sea. I mean, like wild stuff. He's demonstrating the power of his kingdom. He's teaching about his kingdom to his followers. And then in his death and resurrection and ascension, he will establish his kingdom for eternity. It's a story about a new kingdom, a new era of hope for a broken world, a new regime that changes the way the world runs and operates. It's like a new operating system, okay? It's like you take, it's the same computer, you got the same hardware, but you remove the old operating system and you put in something new that actually works. Can you imagine if your computer, like, actually worked all the time. Okay, God's kingdom is a new operating system for a broken world, and he's bringing life and hope and healing wherever it extends. It's a kingdom of grace. To be a citizen of this kingdom, you don't get in uh, like you do in many countries because you have a skill set or because you have a certain set of experiences, but simply because the king wants you there. He wants you in his kingdom. It's a kingdom of forgiveness It's a kingdom of reconciliation. It's a kingdom of hope. It's a kingdom of love and life-giving relationships. That's the big why, okay? The big reason for Christianity, for Jesus' mission on earth. Uh, And to make sense of our passage this morning, which is actually a pretty grim one and a pretty dark one, uh, we need to keep all this in mind because new kingdoms, when they show up, are always threatening to the old kingdoms, aren't they? And new kings, no matter how good, no matter how loving, no matter how just and righteous and um, gracious, are always threats to the old king. And in Mark 6, the old kings are starting to feel the threats of the new kingdom that Jesus is extending into the world. So picking up where we left off last week, Jesus has just sent his disciples out in his name with his authority on his mission. We saw that they were to preach and they were to heal. In other words, they're supposed to bring this new kingdom everywhere they go, okay, extend it to their neighbors, new towns, new areas. And in the first verse of our passage today, verse 14, we read that King Herod heard of it, okay? So Jesus is now starting to make enough noise where the reigning king has heard about the new kingdom in town. 
And frankly, this is showdown language, okay? This is like a clash of kings. I mean, this is like blockbuster sort of like two enemies coming together to confront one another. Jesus the king sends his emissaries into the world, and Herod the king hears about it. What's going to happen? we got a showdown on our hands. The kingdom of God extends bringing hope and life, but wherever it goes, it doesn't go into neutral territory. It always goes into territory that's already occupied by a reigning kingdom, but by a default mode, by a current operating system. That was true then, and it's true now. So this passage is about a clash of kingdoms. Kingdom of the world, that default setting of our lives and our experience, and then the kingdom of God, the new kingdom that Jesus has come to establish to bring healing and hope. So what happens when these two kingdoms collide? That's our question this morning. In fact, maybe deeper than that, what are the characteristics of these two kingdoms? Where, what is each one like? Where is each one headed? All right? So for our time this morning, I want us to look at the defining characteristics of these two kingdoms, the kingdom of the world that we see in Herod, and then the kingdom of God that we see in John the Baptist. So before we dive in and, and look at this, let me just pray for us one more time and ask God to, to bless our time in his word. Jesus, we do ask that as we unpack this passage that is, uh, is hard, it's violent, it's tragic, um, that uh, you would show us what the characteristics of your gracious, loving kingdom are and how, they can, and how they're accessible even to us. We pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to see the good news of the fact that you came into this world to change it and to bring life. Uh, we ask all these things in your name. Amen. All right, so who is Herod? Uh, a little history lesson to get started. At this time, Israel was a state under the control of the Roman Empire. Probably you've, you've heard this before. And it was Rome's practice to appoint a local king over all the different regional provinces that they were sort of over, right? And, um, and they would govern that territory on Rome's behalf. And this was King Herod's job. King Herod was not actually a king, all right? Uh, he took the title because he liked it and it made him feel special, but he was not a king. He was local middle management for the Roman Empire, okay? He kind of governed the territory he was put in charge of, but at the end of the day, he didn't have sovereignty. He didn't have true authority. Uh, he liked the title, but let's be honest, he wasn't really a king. And as you go through the New Testament, it seems like this guy's around forever, right? I mean, like you're coming up to Herod's all over the place, and he was around forever. His name was around forever. The Herodian dynasty held this position for the Roman government for decades. So Herod the Great is the first Herod we meet in the New Testament, and he was the one who, he's actually the father of the Herod we meet here in Mark 6. So Herod the Great, our Herod's father, was the one who tried to have Jesus killed as a baby. Uh, Herod Antipas is our Herod in this story, and he has John the Baptist killed, as we've seen. This is also the Herod that sits over the trial of Jesus before his own crucifixion. And then our Herod's nephew, a guy named Herod Agrippa I, later, he'll try to squelch the rising Christian uh, community by picking off and killing its key leaders. So he has James killed, uh, one of Jesus' closest disciples. He tries to have Peter killed. He has him in jail. He's holding him there during Passover. He's going to have him executed the next day. Angel breaks in, gets Peter out of jail. If you want to read the story, it's in Acts 12. It's pretty awesome. But here's the deal. Herod's 
relentlessly throughout the Bible are opposed to the kingdom of God moving forward. At every stop, they're, they're um, rebellious, they are violent, they are politically motivated, um, and you think your family has issues, right? I mean, imagine sitting at the Herodian Thanksgiving dinner table every year, like terrifying. So throughout the Bible, the Herods are a consistent and violent opposition to the kingdom of God that he came to establish in the world. And what I want us to see for a few minutes here is that that same opposition actually lies at the heart of every kingdom of this world. It isn't always so violent. It isn't always so um, overt as that. But, but the default setting, right, the, the territory that the kingdom of God is moving into in this world, it's not neutral territory, the default setting is an opposition to God's kingdom. It's an opposition to the reign of God over all things, an opposition to the grace and the authority and the power of King Jesus. In other words, kingdoms of this world are always kingdoms of rebellion to the one true king. So what are some characteristics of Herod's kingdom? In fact, all kingdoms of this world. Let me point out just two from this passage. Um, The first is fear. There is a, a deep anxiety at the heart of Herod's kingdom, a a fear that reveals itself in his misuse of power. See, the Herods are not at peace, okay? They're not okay with themselves. They, They don't sit at peace. They're not comfortable in their own skin. He sees threats everywhere. He's afraid of everything. Um, think back to Herod the Great, our Herod's father, who reigned when Jesus was born. Um, a few wise men passed through his town and tell him about the birth of a baby, and they happen to call him king. And what does that Herod do? He totally freaks out, right? Like, the, the, the response is not um, in proportion to the news that he heard. He tries to have every baby under two years old in his entire region killed. Why? Because he heard there was a king who was born who's an infant. That's not something like a rational person does. That's something that's driven out of fear, and he sees threats everywhere. Acts 12, we see the same thing. Our Herod's nephew has men killed um, on a whim just to see his political poll numbers tick up a little bit. And here in Mark 6, Herod Antipas beheads a man in prison. Even though he respects him, he enjoys hearing him preach and teach about Jesus. He wants to keep him safe, but he still has him killed. Why? Because his wife put him in a tight spot, and he didn't want to be embarrassed in front of his friends, and so he abused his power and had a man killed. See, one characteristics of the kingdoms of this world, the, the default operating system, not just out there, but in here, the default operating system in here is that we only feel safe when we're in control, but the world is way too big to, to control, and so we're anxious and we're afraid. And out of that anxiety and fear, we abuse our power. Uh, we misuse our power. We gossip. We manipulate. We use our words to hurt others uh, or to seize control. We, we almost always do these things because we're afraid. The, the fear of losing control of a situation, maybe the fear of being revealed to be incompetent, exposed as a fraud, whatever the fear is, the kingdoms of this world run on it. Okay? Uh, one, of the, one of the things that I think... I mentioned I worked at Northwestern before I came here. One of the things that runs that place is FOMO, 
right? You guys know FOMO, the fear of missing out. Um, that is like, they like pump that into the water at Northwestern and it just drives so much of what students do. I really think fear is a driving factor in so much of what we do more than we even think. Here's another characteristic of the kingdoms of this world, people pleasing. Herod was a vain man who needed the constant approval of other people. He throws himself a birthday party, okay, which is fine. You can throw yourself a birthday party. That doesn't mean you're a narcissist. Um, but he invites a bunch of high-profile people. We're in verse 21. They were nobles, military commanders, leading men of the region. And his wife's daughter danced for the crowd. We don't know what kind of dance could inspire him to offer her up to half his kingdom, but uh, he did. And in fact, verse 23 says that he vowed to do this. Okay, He made a, a solemn promise. You can have anything you want up to half my kingdom, which technically wasn't his to give away anyway, but that's beside the point. And when she went and consulted with her mom and came back with the word that I want John the Baptist's head on a platter, this is what we read in verse 26. Herod was exceedingly sorry because of his oaths and his guests. He did not want to break his word to her. That explanation is revealing, isn't it? Uh, that is very telling. He didn't want to do it. He didn't want to kill John the Baptist. He liked the guy, okay? He, and he knew it wasn't right to kill him. He was a prisoner. He was doing no harm. You can't just go in and murder prisoners on a whim. He could have backed out. He could have said, I was wrong to make that vow in the first place. But because of his oaths and his guests who heard that oath, he chose murder over embarrassment, Okay, why? Like, in what world does that make sense to choose murder over being embarrassed? In what kingdom does that make any sense? Here's the thing we need to see if we're going to understand how the kingdoms of this world work in our hearts and in our lives. Herod was a king, but he was deeply enslaved. Okay, he was enslaved to the opinions of other people. Herod lived for the praise of other people more than the praise of God. Herod gave other people's opinion of him the place in his life that only God deserved. He worshipped their approval, and what he worshipped enslaved him and caused him to do things that all of us would say are irrational and crazy. Take the embarrassment, man. Just say, I messed up. I shouldn't have made the vow. I'm not going to murder a guy. He couldn't do it because his heart was enslaved to pleasing other people's opinions. This is how it always is in the kingdoms of this world. And what's interesting, as I read about, about this kind of stuff, is the commentary, the person I found that makes the best commentary, has said the mo most insightful thing about this spiritual dynamic, isn't even a Christian at all. Um, a guy named David Foster Wallace was a novelist, and he was a professor of creative writing. Um, tragically, in 2008, he took his own life. Um, but in 2005, he delivered a commencement speech at Kenyon College, and the remarks have been printed under a title called This is Water. I want to read just a portion of it for you. I think we're going to put it on the screen so you can follow along. But remember, this man is, is not a believer, okay? He's just, he's just an insightful guy. Um, this is what he says to the students. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. The only choice we get is what to worship. And there's outstanding reasons for choosing some sort of God to worship. 
Um, and the reason is that pretty much anything else you worship is going to eat you alive. He goes on to give examples. If you worship money and things, it's they that are going to... I'm sorry. If they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. I mean, he could be writing a commentary on Mark 6, right? But this is just a guy, not even a believer, who is looking into the human heart and talking about how it works. Worship your intellect, he says. Being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being... This is how he wraps it up. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They're, they're default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom, he says, to be lords of our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms alone at the center of all creation. Okay, that's not a Christian speaking. But obviously, David Foster Wallace is a man with a deep sensitivity to the human spirit and the heart, a man who understood that we are all built and designed to tap into something greater than ourselves. We can't not worship. We are worshipers. That's what we'll do. But where we place that worship, what king we serve, what kingdom we live in, is going to define the trajectory of our lives and all of the options out, out there, out there, there, enough to carry the weight of our identity, to carry the weight and the meaning of our life. Herod was an enslaved king. On the surface, he was free to do whatever he wanted to do. Live in luxury, throw wild parties. He lived for riches, sexual pleasure, comfort. But deep down, he was enslaved to those things. He was the lord of his own tiny skull-sized kingdom. He wasn't even a, he wasn't even a king, but he called himself a king. And all, and all that he worshipped was eventually going to eat him alive. Consider how different Herod is from John the Baptist and the kingdom that John faithfully served, the kingdom of God, um, where King Jesus reigns. There are only two stories in the entire book of Mark that are not about Jesus, that are not directly about him. And both are about John the Baptist. Okay, um, John B., as his buddies called him, J.B., uh, J.B. is a big deal. Okay, like he's he's big time. Uh, He's a famous guy and actually not just in the Bible, but Josephus was an early church uh, historian. He wasn't a Christian and he included more about John the Baptist and his histories than he did about Jesus. And the reason is at the time, John the Baptist had a bigger following. His name was more well known. He had bigger crowds in his ministry than even Jesus did. Okay, JB is a big deal. In fact, Jesus himself said in Matthew 11, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. John was great, right? I mean, he was a great, great man. Uh, He was bold. He was committed. He was an incredible communicator. He had a laser focus vision and mission for his life. He could have made quite a name for himself. In fact, he did. Uh, But instead of making it about him, we read what his life 
was really about. When Jesus walks out to the Jordan River and Jesus is ministering, or John is ministering to his crowds, he says this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then later in John 3, he goes on to say, That man, the Lamb of God, Christ, he must become greater and I must become less. See, John knew what um, what, uh, what kingdom he lived in. He knew that he was a citizen um, and a subject to which king. He knew he was the messenger and Jesus was the true message that the world needed. He knew that he had a significant voice, but that Jesus was the very word of God, the very word of life. John knew he was just a signpost pointing to the true destination. He didn't have... Um, he didn't have to make his own life significant. He didn't have to um, solve his own sin problem. He didn't have to solve his own meaning problem. He knew that as a content, humble citizen of the kingdom of God, Jesus solves all of those problems on his behalf. In other words, John knew that he was the minor character in another person's story. He knew his life wasn't about himself that Jesus, the King, the Lord, the Sovereign, and the God ruled over all things. And he lived with great clarity on this truth. And that made him the polar opposite of Herod. John was great, not because he was rich or influential or famous. He sort of became influential and famous by accident. But I think if you would have taken those things away from John, his life wouldn't have changed at all. His diet wouldn't have changed. I mean, locusts and honey in the desert, right? What a weirdo. But the point is, he wasn't living for the fame. He wasn't living for the riches. He had a strong identity, a secure future, and a certain hope because he believed his own life was not about himself, but always and forever about Jesus. Um, He was a member and a messenger of God's kingdom. Christ must become greater I must become less. That is the mantra of everyone in the kingdom of God. What would happen if that became your mantra too? If your entire life was framed with the banner, Christ must become greater and I must become less. I mean, like how would that impact your day tomorrow, practically, on the ground? Christ becomes great, I become less. When we lay down our life and our fame, and our greatness, and we invest all of our energy and resources in his life, and his fame, and his greatness. What happens, in other words, when we become citizens of God's kingdom? Well, lots of things happen, but there's two in this passage that I'll I'll point to as we um, wrap up our time. First, there's always a cost to following Jesus, okay? There's always a cost, Uh, John, like so many of Jesus' followers throughout the centuries, paid a great cost to follow Jesus. He was brave. He was bold. He proclaimed the message of Jesus, and the powers uh, that were did not like it, especially Herodias, Herod's wife, because John simply pointed out the fact that her marriage to Herod uh, was against God's word. Okay, And this prophetic clarity then called to account ended up costing John his head. The story's tragic. It's actually not that uncommon. It's sad. Believers around the world die regularly, right? I mean, daily, because of their faith in Jesus. Because they're more committed to following him than to following the path of least resistance, 
to following the path of comfort, to following the path of an easy life. I mean, where we live right now and when we live right now takes that cost for most of us off the table. But don't assume there are no costs to following Jesus just because we might not be in line to pay the ultimate cost to follow Jesus. I mean, following Jesus in our modern world in this valley today, it costs us something, doesn't it? I mean, it, we, it will cost us money to invest in God's kingdom and, and to pour our resources generously into what he is doing in the world. It will cost us emotional energy and bandwidth to have people over regularly in the name of gospel hospitality just to connect people and to connect with people in deeper ways. It's going to cost us some social uncomfort to go public, so to speak, as a Christian in a very secular valley, in a very secular world. It's going to cost us some freedom. It's going to cost us some flexibility to commit to regularly meeting with God's people in worship. But here's the thing. If David Foster Wallace is right that everyone worships, and I think he is, then we can also say that everyone pays a cost, don't they? I mean, everyone is investing their money and their resources and their time and their energy in what they love. You will invest in what grabs your heart and fires your jets and gets you out of bed in the morning. Just think, as an experiment, you don't have to say this out loud, but think of the things that you need to keep yourself from spending money on, okay? Where is it just super easy to drop cash? Even if you don't quite have it, you can push it a little bit. I mean, clothes, gear, right? I'll just raise, I'll just tell you mine's gear, okay, in the name of honesty and vulnerability here. Uh, Kids, maybe, food, good food. Like, where is it easy for you to spend your money? Where it's easy to pay the costs for the things you love. That's what we worship, right? That's where we're looking for joy. That's where we're looking for happiness, where it's easy to pay the costs. Um, Can you imagine what it would be like? Uh, to feel like you have to check yourself on how much you give to God's mission in the world? Like, what would that even feel like? Uh, What would it feel like to have to budget what you give to foreign missionaries? Not because you might give too little, but because you might give too much, and you still need to put food on the table for the kids at the end of the day. Can you imagine how um, just how um, exciting it would be um, to pay... the cost of time, money, talent, um, your space to follow Jesus wherever he leads because he has become so great to your heart and, and and has consumed so much of your love and worship that it's actually just easy to give yourself out to him, away to him. Okay, I can't imagine that. Not yet. By the grace of God, maybe in a few decades I'll be able to imagine that. Right now, I can't imagine that, but I think John could. Okay, I think he happily paid these costs and poured out his life for the kingdom of God. He gave his life during his life and at the time of his death for a king and a kingdom he knew would usher him into eternity. He exchanged the currency of this world for the currency that lasts into eternity. Okay, it's like this. John was holding wads and wads of Confederate cash in March of 1865, okay? I mean, he was loaded. He had, he had cash piled up in his bedroom under his mattress, drawers, you name it. The guy was loaded, all right? And he was holding all of this Confederate cash. The Civil War wasn't over yet, but it would be in a month. 
And John the Baptist had the foresight to see, wait a second, I am rich here, but in a month, all of this is going to be worthless. There's not even going to be a Confederate dollar in a month from now. And so what does he do with the foresight and the clarity? He goes and he unloads all of it, all of his riches, okay? He gets rid of all that Confederate cash, and his neighbors think he is crazy, okay? I mean, like, what are you doing, man? You used to be rich, and now you're just getting rid of all the cash you have in your, in your house. He cashes it all in, but the thing is, he knows the future, doesn't he? And he knows the currency that's going to last into the future and the currency that's not going to last into the future. Each kingdom has its own currency, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And you are not crazy to cash in your currency of the kingdom of this world for an eternal currency that will last forever with Christ into eternity. Uh, See, are there costs to the Christian life? Of course there are costs to following Jesus. Of course there are. Um, All worship will cost us something. The question is, are we paying in to an investment um, that will last, right? Is this a good place to invest our resources? Herod had all the freedom the world could offer on the surface, and he poured his energy into holding on to that power and getting the right approval from the right people. But deep down... He was a slave, okay? He was enslaved. John was literally enslaved in prison on the surface. But deep down, he knew the freedom and the joy of living as a child of God, not just now, but for eternity. And he poured his life into following Jesus wherever that led and whatever that costs, not because it's crazy, because it makes perfect sense if Jesus really is the king. The end of John's life was a tragedy, He's the innocent victim of an evil political system that felt so arbitrary and random and sad. He didn't get a final speech. There was no going down in a blaze of glory. A nameless executioner went to a cell, and that was it. But life after life after death for John was the exact opposite of that. It was a glory. It was sheer joy. Paul says in Romans 8, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us. That's the why that sits at the center of Christianity. That's the reason that Jesus came into the world, to establish a kingdom that changes the world for the good, to invite us to be participants in it, and then to give us the very glory of God forever. We bask in the glory of Jesus himself, and his glory transforms us into the people we all wish we could be. It's not crazy to invest in that kingdom, okay? It's actually very, very smart. The kingdom of God, the currency of the kingdom of God, lasts into eternity. Invest your time, your money, your resources there, because that is the promise of the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for coming into this world. Thanks for taking on... um, the pain of it and the suffering of it. Thanks for living in the kingdoms of this world, um, even though you weren't of them. Um, thanks for bearing all of the, uh, the problems and the brokenness of our broken world in order that you could invite us into a new kingdom. You could offer us the, the, the chance, the grace, 
and the faith to participate in what you're doing in the world. We pray that that kingdom would become very real to us, very real to our hearts, very real to our minds and our spirits, and you would help us live into it more and more by your grace. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.